Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Jack Hodgins. Today we'll be discussing the effects of climate change on our food. In the first part of the program, we are joined by Dr. Graham Horton from the University of Newcastle. And in the second segment, we talk to sheep farmer and chairman of Farmers for Climate Action, Charlie Prell. Dr. Horton has worked in clinical medicine in rural parts of Australia and is the Associate Dean of Interprofessional Learning and Student Wellbeing for the School of Medicine and Public Health at the University of Newcastle. Dr. Horton also co-authored the 2008 Climate Change Health Check 2020 report for the Climate Institute and presented it at the 61st United Nations Department of Public Information slash NGO conference. Hello, Graham, and welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Jack. It's uh, great to be here. The World Health Organization has called climate change the greatest threat to global health in the 21st century. This threat has the potential to affect all aspects of life. One of the most important of these aspects is the food we eat. On the Global Food Security Index, out of 113 countries, Australia is number 31 on the spectrum of food security. For now, the nation is arguably quite stable in terms of our access and sustainability of our food. But what could climate change mean to the future of what we eat? Yeah, look, it's a great question, Jack. And um, I mean, you've highlighted there uh, you know, very powerfully the, the point made that climate change is a, is a threat to health. It's also an opportunity. Um, and I think, you know, as we think about food, there are many changes that are on the, on the horizon for us. Um, and at the same time, there's a lot of uh, direction and um, hope that we can move and make those changes that uh, will safeguard uh, the future of uh, of this and future generations as well. But um, in answer to your question about, like in Australia, Australia clearly, you know, has a very, very diverse mm. um, uh, food uh, production um, uh, range of, of uh, everything from livestock to, to grains. Um, and what we're seeing in Australia and what we know the predictions are is for a, a long-term drying particularly in the southernmost parts of Australia mm. um, and at the same time in the northern um, northern parts of Australia we're, we're going to get more extreme weather events more periods of intense rainfall um, and that can you know have costs as well in terms of periods of flooding um, and uh, you know natural disasters in that regard and you are highlighted um, just then that thinking about like to change that it's an opportunity should we be thinking about that changes opportunity that we have an opportunity to go some other direction look absolutely this represents an opportunity for all of us to get on board with lifestyles um, and and ways of being that are in line with you know safeguarding the future in line with you know bringing down um, carbon emissions uh, limiting that global temperature rise to um, that to one that will yeah safeguard the future and and limit those sort of health impacts so um, look there are opportunities on you know practically every front mm. um, in terms of how we use energy how we exercise you know what our diets are um, how our attitudes to waste um, and you know what I'm talking about here is really you know that's even beyond thinking about ecosystems more broadly which are obviously uh, really important to think about in terms of how how we safeguard biodiversity as well mm. but this is but you know front and center this is a, a human health issue and that's why you know the school of um, medicine and, and my colleagues are taking it very seriously in australia we consume about 110 kilograms of meat per person per year but despite this red meat especially is very insufficient as an energy source when measured up against the resources it takes to produce it to a feed in australia in the yearly quota of beef which is approximately 20 kilograms annually 
It takes 300 kilograms of grain and 300,000 litres of water. Furthermore, 15% of all greenhouse emissions are caused by the global meat industry. Theoretically, if we were to change our collective diets with combating climate change in mind, what would be the perfect diet that was both health and environmentally conscious? That's a, that's, and that's, you framed that question very well because uh, thinking about a, a perfect diet really, you know, there is room to think about the individual here. Mm. And some people um, have different nutritional needs. So, and that's why it makes sense for health professionals to be involved in this when we're tailoring diets that meet the particular needs of each person. I mean, I would say that, you know, clearly, you know, everyone needs to have that right balance of carbohydrates, protein, fat in the diet. Um, and we, you know, it's becoming increasingly easy to manage that within a plant-based plant -based diet these days. I mean, just anecdotally, I remember um, having a bit of a go with veganism, you know, 20 years ago, <laughs> and I just got incredibly hungry. Um, uh, whereas, you know, there are now, there are just so many ways mm. in which you can have, you know, the required amounts of, of uh, protein in the diet. Um, you know, for example, you know, vegetarian, vegan sausages right. um, can have like 20% uh, um, protein per weight. Um, and that's uh, as well as, yeah, the, and then, you know, further mix of carbohydrates, in fact, which are, are really quite sustaining. Mm. Um, so really the further you can go towards managing, you know, that distribution within a plant-based diet, the better it is, um, for the environment generally. I mean, there are some considerations in thinking about food miles and it's always best also to be consuming local produce, mm. um, because yeah, air freighted fresh fruit and vegetables have an incredibly high carbon footprint as well. But um, yeah, I mean, but apart from that, moving more towards a plant-based diet is good for yourself and good for the environment. Now, keeping in mind that there are some uh, there are some caveats to that in terms of if people are exclusively vegan, then uh, in terms of in and by that I mean no animal products at all, so no dairy, no eggs, um, that uh, can um, result in vitamin B12 deficiency. Mm. Um, and so people who are exclusively vegan need to, um, guard against that by taking B12 supplements. Um, and again, that can, is becoming easier these days because, uh, you know, a lot of chemists now have, uh, sprays that you can use under the tongue, um, which are better absorbed than taking B12 orally in the stomach. Um, so there are, yeah, these B12 sprays that you can get. Some people, um, have B12 by injections or whatnot, but, but, you know, acting early when you start to embark on a veganism diet, mm. if that's your choice, then, um, starting with that sort of supplementation of, uh, um, vitamins such as B12 and looking at, uh, making sure that your calcium levels yep. are, are good as well. Um, these are all things that everyone can do. And as a collective, I mean, in the Western world, how do you think in your mind, are we going to achieve that? How are we going to convince people to maybe get, stop eating as much meat and maybe go towards more plant-based diets, as you said? So, and that's, I think, where um, it needs to be viewed as an, an opportunity. Um, mm. And it's a, it's a choice that I think we can, um, you know, as health professionals, it's important for um, that to be part of the discussion about ways in which people can stay healthy. There's a term um, called co-benefits uh, that talk about things that are beneficial for 
someone's health as well as being good for the environment. And, um, and you know, and, th and this sort of reaches across yeah, food and uh, power usage and active transport, mm. people being able to exercise in ways that have lower carbon emissions. Yeah, I mean, you've asked how are we going to sort of affect that sort of behavioural change. I think that's where also we need to, you know, listen to those lessons learned about what motivates people, uh, what's, what gets people on board with, um, you know, changing in ways that's good for them as well as good for helping others. And I think, high, uh, you know, part of it is just highlighting the risks that business as usual poses to our future and that mm. of generations uh, that are coming. That's, that's part of it. But also for people to know that, look, there is a, there is a better way and showing that, uh, yeah, to, to re reduce your, your carbon emissions is achievable. It's achievable mm. on a personal level. It's achievable at a, you know, a local level and it's achievable at a, at a government level in terms of setting policy. Uh, uh, it's important that, yeah, people see that as an opportunity of stepping up and, and, and helping others. In Australia, we have approximately 85,681 farm businesses, 99% of which are family owned and operated. Statistically speaking, a lot of those working in this industry face struggles with mental health. With climate change in mind, we know that our farmers are going to be the first to be negatively impacted before we see that impact hit our supermarkets. How is climate change going to affect the well-being and mental health of our farmers? So, um, Jack, I guess it's a, a number of ways. And, uh, you know, these are some of the, you know, the most confronting of stories that we hear about climate change in terms of just year after year, the different ways in which um, some farmers have been affected um, in terms of that long-term drying that we spoke of earlier yeah. that's projecting, uh, projected for Australia in terms of longer uh, longer term droughts the you know other other changes in terms of salinity and, and drying of river systems um, that make it harder um, for uh, or, or decrease the viability of some agricultural businesses and then on top of that you've got you know those periodic other natural disasters such as um, bushfires which uh, you mentioned that climate change health check report. I mean, that, one of the things that, um, yeah, we, we, we looked at there was what the firefighters were telling us about increased risk of um, bushfires in, in the years ahead. Uh, so we know that, yeah, bushfires are expected to mm. um, be uh, more common and to be more difficult to extinguish. So, yeah, you've got those long-term threats. You've got those national uh, natural disasters. It's important, therefore, to um, put in place things to safeguard uh, the mental health of people in those areas. I mean, there's been some important work done by uh, Hannigan Butler uh, looking at drought over a long-term period in New South Wales between uh, 1970 and, and 2007. And they found that, you know, according to their modelling, that, um, you know, when you looked at uh, deaths of men in rural areas between the ages of 30 and 49, that actually 9% of those total deaths in that group um, could be attributed to suicides with some association with drought. Mm. Now, that's before we've started to see a lot of the um, effects of uh, drought that are projected. So um, safeguarding the mental health and improving mental health services in those areas is a real priority that I know a lot of my rural colleagues are, are working very hard on. We're almost out of time, Graham, but are there any points you'd like to bring up that have not yet been addressed? I mean, it's, it's great to cover all of these issues and, and to see how, you know, much they all interrelate. But um, I think, uh, you know, I'd just like to leave that, uh, that, that idea that this is, 
you know, this is the chance for all of us to be part of like a, a global healing mm. sort of phenomenon um, where, yep, we, we can see some of the writing on the wall about what's going to happen if, if uh, things don't change. And this is a chance for all of us to sort of just think about how much waste we produce, how much greenhouse gas emissions result from our lifestyles and that there's a better way um, and that there's so much, uh, so much to feel good about in that regard in terms of um, thinking about, you know, joining with others who are thinking about the same sort of things as a relational component mm. to acting on this. It's important too that uh, people don't get overwhelmed by the scale of it and to recognise that all of us can't do everything. Yep. Like uh, sometimes a, a coping mechanism is to sort of focus on one particular element of this and say, well, you know, that's my thing and feel good about that and yeah. feel sort of... Um, and, and also just to make sure that uh, when faced with these sort of things that are, uh, we can feel worried about, that we recognise those um, emotions you know, be kind uh, to ourselves when we're and to recognise them um, and take time out when we need to recognise that really reducing our own carbon emissions is a, is a coping mechanism in itself. Well, thank you, Graham, for sharing your insight with us today on the effects of climate change in our food. We appreciate you taking the time. Great to talk with you, Jack. Thank you. You're listening to Wellbeing, where we are discussing the effects of climate change on our food. That was my first guest for today, Dr. Graham Horton from the University of Newcastle. Now I'll be talking to Charlie Prell, Chairman of Farmers of Climate Action and Sheep Farmer based in Crookwell, New South Wales. Hello, Charlie, and welcome to the program. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for including me in this conversation. What is Farmers for Climate Action and what is your role there? Farmers for Climate Action is a group that was formed in 2015, so we're only six years old. And a group of farmers got together, I was one of those, and we decided that we needed to change the public perception and sometimes the political perception that farmers were resistant to action on climate change. Um, It's taken six years for us to gain credence in the political and the agro-political world that we have, and I can assure you there are many farmers. We represent more than 5,500 farming families across Australia and our, our social media following is something like 50,000 followers. So we're very passionate about explaining to regional Australians who maybe get caught up in the political diatribe that, it, that the world is going to be ruined, particularly farmers are going to be ruined by uh, if we do take aggressive action on climate change. Our opinion, strong opinion, and it's substantiated by fact, is that there are massive opportunities for farmers out there and regional communities as well if we do move as a nation, if we move towards a place where we can actually not only support but embrace and be enthused by addressing climate change. So I'm the chair of Farmers for Climate Action at the moment. I, I took that role in October last year, but I have been involved from day one. And what is your background with farming and how long have you been involved? Uh, I've been a farmer all my life. I, I've just turned 64. Um, I live in, I'm fortunate to live in some of the best farming country in Australia and also some of the, geographically, one of the areas that is 
less prone to, to climate damage than, than others. But but I've still seen substantial impacts and, and changes in the weather patterns that we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years. When did you start first seeing those changes to the agricultural sector due to climate change? I became aware of the threat of climate change probably through the millennium droughts when uh, in the middle of the millennium drought there was a political fight between John Howard and Kevin Rudd over the uh, renewable energy target. Uh, that, that raised my awareness of climate change. And then I thought through the last, over the last five or six years when we had a very short, but no, not a very short, a reasonably short, but a very intense dry spell drought in sort of 2015 to 2019 roughly. I just thought, hang on, we just went through a one in a hundred year drought, as in the millennium drought, which was 2002 to 2009. And then in 2015, earlier for some, but in 2015 here, it started to get dry again. People started to talk about a one in a hundred year drought again, 10 years later. So at that, that point, that was about when I became involved with Farmers for Climate Action. And how much of the farming community is in support of climate action? Is there a divide of any kind? In the early days, Climate action was seen to be building renewables, and there was a lot of controversy over the way that was managed 10 or 15 years ago by people like me, the fortunate few who got to host the renewables being paid to host those renewables, wind and solar, well, mainly wind in those days, but solar as well. And then people on the other side of the fence, so my neighbours, could see the large wind turbines or in those days the prospect of the large turbines, and they could quickly, reasonably easily, um, work out the benefit that I would be receiving for hosting those turbines, and then and they weren't originally they weren't going to get anything. That's all changed now, and there's a, it's a massive change that needed to happen. So there was a bit of a divide between the people who benefited from action on climate and the people like me, and the people who didn't. Saying that, I agitated really, really strongly for what I call benefit sharing which meant that my, not only me, but my neighbours and the community generally should be benefiting from this renewables boom. And I'm actually just writing a submission in, in that regard. If, if, if we as communities out here in regional Australia leave people behind, then there's, obvi there's obviously going to be inequality in that, which leads to jealousy, which leads to divisiveness in communities. And, and we saw all that play out in the early part of this century. There has been a bit of a divide. Some of that still lingers. There is still a portion of the uh, farming community who believe that that the world is that their world is going to be ruined if we do uh, that it's going to be expensive to address climate change without considering the impacts of doing nothing. Do our farmers feel like they have the support of the Australian people? Whenever drought hits or floods hit or bushfires hit, generally in regional Australia, urban Australians dig deep into their pockets to help. That sort of amuses me a bit because if you're running a fish and chip shop, for instance, in Sydney somewhere and things go awry, not because of you, because of something happening to, to, to impact on your business, there's not the same uh, level, I don't think, of generosity or care from the wider community for, for that individual. And it amuses me, really, that urban Australians have this innate and extraordinary empathy with farmers when times are tough. I assume that happens when times are good, but we, we don't really know that because there's no, there's no way of measuring that, really. But um, I, I hope that that uh, relationship is reflected from farmers to urban dwellers when things get really tough in 
in relation to social issues like the pandemic at the moment, the whole of Sydney Basin is in lockdown, or um, heat stress, which is going to be a huge problem in Western Sydney in the, in the near future, or already is in some people's opinion. And I think that that will be reflected by by the, the genuine people in, in regional Australia. So it's a bit of a dichotomy, but there's, a, there's an extraordinarily deep relationship between urban Australia and, and farmers, and I think that's really healthy for the country. What is the relationship like for our farmers with the big supermarket chains, and how do those relationships affect the farmers' ability to fight climate change? That's always been a tenuous relationship. Large farmers tend to suffer least. Small farmers are at the, at the mercy of the market. Uh, that's not just farmers. That's across the board. I, I, I'm confident that farmers are in a, in a place now with the breaking of the drought, post-bushfires, the extraordinary prices we're seeing for commodities at the moment. Everyone knows about iron ore, but including most meats and fibres and vegetables. Farmers are in a position to take advantage of that. There, there's also an opportunity. The obvious one is for farmers and communities to host renewables, wind and solar, but also batteries and, and other the new generation infrastructure. So there's an opportunity there for farmers and the communities where we live to have huge drought-resilient income streams into the future, which will be needed because the, the, the weather systems are going to change, so the farming communities are going to have to be much, much more resilient than they already are. In relation to the supermarkets, um, everybody, just about everybody shops in two supermarkets in this country, and I won't name them because everyone knows who they are, but everyone that walks into those supermarkets has to start becoming a conscious consumer. And they have to start looking at... The QR codes are making this really easy. They have to start looking at food, where it was produced, how it was produced, and how far away it is was that production was from where they're actually standing when they buy that produce. It's not, it's not easy to do that, but it is possible. And I think conscious consumers are going to drive the supermarkets into having a much better relationship, a partnership-type relationship with farmers, small farmers particularly, than they have in the past. If they don't, hopefully people will start moving towards farmers' markets, smaller retail chains, people with more connections and, and um, traceability options. If no substantial action is done today and things are left too long, what is the result going to be for our farmers and the sustainability of Australia's food? Every day we delay is a day too late, but it's never too late to take action. Every day we, every day we delay action makes the task even harder that we have to address. So there's a dynamic equation here in relation to climate change. The longer we delay, the harder the ask is going to be. And the longer we delay, the more it's going to cost us as a society and as an economy. Deliberately, I said society first, not economy first, because the society will be wearing the cost of climate change into the future if we don't take action. Not just farmers. We're all in this together. That stuff that you hear from politicians about, you know, inner-city in latte drinking, whatever they are, people that care about the climate, that's just rubbish. That's just political speak for divide and conquer. We're all in this together, and I can assure you, regional Australians generally, not just farmers, are very aware of the fact that we are all in this together, and we need to be all in this together because the, the benefits are flowing to the regions. In the past, they probably haven't. They are now, and regions are very, very willing and happy to share those benefits with our urban 
brothers and sisters. And I really liked your point when you said about the supermarkets, about partnership and that they need to work together. Because I, I think for a, a large degree, I think there's like, it's like you say, there's a two-way street. But I think this is a four-way street because you have the farmers, the supermarkets, the government and the consumers. And it seems like they all need to really be in this together to and work together towards a common goal, which I suppose is a sustainable uh, way of getting food for our country. Absolutely. And it's not just a, it's not a, it's a very, there's strength in diversity. So it's a whole raft of different um, retail and wholesale systems. And if one of them goes down, if one of them is taken out by a virus or a blackout or whatever it is, then the others can fill in that hole. And and, and that's really important. So the, the, the current trend that we're seeing in relation to farmers markets and community gardens is another great example. People are becoming really aware of, of nutritious food, not just food, nutritious food. And there's people, companies that are uh, filling that space in a good way and using QR codes, as I said, to, to ensure traceability so you can scan the QR code. Everyone knows what a QR code is now. You can scan the QR code on your phone and, and all of a sudden the, the farm that produced that meat or zucchini or whatever it is um, pops up on your phone. So you can actually, there's, there's lifetime instant traceability and it's not just within Australia, globally. And I think there'll be a, there's already an indica- a strong indication from Europe particularly but the rest of the world who are our customers that they, they're going to demand traceability not just on quality or the quantity and the, how the animals were treated and all that stuff but also on how you're running your farm in relation to the climate and whether you're running a, a climate carbon neutral basically or, or, or at least having an attempt to, to create a carbon neutral farm. And that's a good thing for all sorts of reasons. What would be the take home from this interview you'd want people to remember the most? Firstly, that farmers do care about climate change and we actually, I think the majority of farmers, but, but definitely, and when I say farmers, I mean farming families and the communities where they live that are really, really insistent that we get over this climate wars thing that we, we've been living under for 15 years nearly now in this country, get over it, move on, get bipartisanship and start accepting that change is inevitable. It's going to happen whether we like it or not. And the only way for us to manage that change is to be part of it, to embrace it and then direct it so that we can actually have a, a change that we're part of rather than a, a bumpy ride. If The transition in climate, in energy and society that we've talked about, that's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's a matter of how rough the ride is going to be from the start to the end. So so that would be my take-home message, to get on board, sit down and, and read if you need to or listen to podcasts like this one, to know that there is a rosy future out there if we want to embrace it, but we have to want to embrace it. Thank you for sharing your perspective today with us, Charlie. We appreciate you taking the time. That's my pleasure. Absolute pleasure. My two guests today were Dr. Graham Horton from the University of Newcastle and Charlie Prell, sheep farmer and chairman of Farmers for Climate Action. Thank you for listening. I'm Jack Hodgins, and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.